I said, we're going to close up Colossians this morning. And, you know, as I was looking at these last few verses, I felt like uh, the Holy Spirit was convicting me and leading me to focus on those first couple of verses, verses two through four, and really take a sermon and think about the idea of prayer. And uh, very few things make me feel more like a hypocrite than to preach on prayer. It's something that I am not very good at, to be honest, but it's something that I want to grow in. I want to grow as a prayer. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a 20th century British pastor, and he never wrote or spoke on prayer because of his own sense of personal inadequacy in that area. I'm not taking his advice. I think it's actually important for me to think about it and for us to think about it together. And I think it's important for us to address it as a church and as a community of faith. You know, as we approach five years here at Christchurch, our five-year birthday is coming up this Easter. I think it's an appropriate time for us to kind of reflect on who we are and what God has done. And I think we, like any other church, have strengths and weaknesses. Uh, We love each other well. We're radically gospel-focused. We care about good teaching. We welcome new people into our family well. I think we have many, many wonderful strengths that the Spirit has wrought among us. But we're also, I think, weak in particular areas. And that's a part of growth, isn't it? Realizing where we are weak. And I believe that prayer is one of those areas. You know, not to personalize this too much, but I'm approaching my 40th birthday, not too long from now. Some of you think he's still so young. Some of you think, wow, he's old, depending on where you are in your own life. And uh, I still have so many hopes and dreams for our church, which I hope are rooted in a godly ambition. But the one dream that I think has grown the most, really, in the last five years, is that we would more and more be a people who seek God's face, who seek God's face in prayer. So prayer is our topic this morning as we wrap up Colossians. And it's interesting to note how this letter of the Apostle Paul is bookended by prayer. At the very beginning of Colossians, we read back in chapter 1 that he prays for the Christians that he was writing this letter to initially. And then here at the end, in these verses, we see him encourage the Colossians and us to continue steadfastly in prayer. That's an important word you see there in verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, he says. Devote yourselves to prayer. That's something that we see all over the pages of the New Testament. Just as a couple of examples. In Acts, we see all the time the church doing this. Acts 1.14 says, All the disciples were with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer. Same word. Together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to prayer and to the apostles' teaching. Acts 6.4, but we will, the elders said, devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Romans chapter 12, verse 12, Paul tells us, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Ephesians 6, pray at all times in the spirit with prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So this is a common theme for the people of God. If you're wondering what it means to be a Christian, if you haven't been in church for a while and maybe you're back for the first time in some time, it's important for you to hear this morning that one of the main rhythms of the life of a follower of Jesus Christ is prayer, devoting ourselves individually and corporately to it. That's so crucial for us. And as you fit it into the context of Colossians, if you remember the last few weeks, we've seen that Paul is applying 
the gospel. I've talked about this in terms of the combustion cycle of the gospel. Faith and repentance, when it's at work in the hearts of the believer, is going to, by the Spirit, over time, bring transformation. It's going to bring change. But when faith and repentance on a daily level are not at work in the life of a believer, change is going to be stifled. And so Paul has written to us about how the gospel should be affecting our marriages and our families and our work lives. And then today we see how the gospel affects us and that it leads to a growing commitment to prayerfulness. The combustion cycle leads to growing prayer lives. That's an aspect of the gospel change that we all need. You know, you could even say, to sort of add to my metaphor, that prayer is like the oil that gives the engine of the gospel the ability to flow, to run smoothly. I'm not a car guy. That might not make sense, but I think, it's, I think that makes sense. Prayer is the oil that allows the combustion cycle to go to work. Here's how Tim Keller puts it in his book on prayer. Listen to what he writes. Prayer is the main way we experience deep change, the reordering of our loves. Prayer is how God gives us so many of the unimaginable things he has for us. Prayer is simply the key to everything we need to do and be in life. We must learn to pray. We have to. And so what I want to do this morning, just for a couple of minutes, is break this sermon into two parts. I want us to think about hindrances, hindrances to steadfast prayer, and helps, helps for steadfast prayer. So let's do that. Look at what Paul says. Be watchful. He says, verse two, be watchful in prayer with thanksgiving. Continue steadfastly. Devote yourselves to it. He's saying, labor with me in this. Work with me. Strive with me. Why is it important to see that? Well, what Paul's doing is acknowledging the difficulty of prayer. Isn't prayer difficult? If you've ever tried to pray steadfastly and regularly, you will very, very soon come up against the cement wall of difficulty. You know, just this week, as I was preparing to think about and preach about prayer, I've tried to pray more. And it's hard to even explain what happens to me internally when I try to wrestle in prayer and strive in prayer. It's almost like a, a physical pain, a, a sense of utter mental exhaustion. It's like spiritually ramming into a wall repeatedly. Flannery O'Connor was another 20th century novelist who wrote in her diary in 1946 about her own struggles to deepen her prayer life. And I think she puts it very beautifully. Listen to what she said. Dear God, I cannot love thee the way I want to. You are the slim crescent of a moon that I see, and myself is the earth's shadow that keeps me from seeing all the moon. What I'm afraid of, dear God, is that my self-shadow will grow so large that it blocks the whole moon, and that I will judge myself by the shadow that is nothing. I do not know you, God, because I am in the way." I think one of the first things you experience when you attempt to devote yourselves to prayer is the reality of your own inner spiritual emptiness. There's many hindrances to a steadfast prayer life. I just want to give you three as we consider these things together for a few minutes this morning. What are some of the things that make prayer seem that way for us, like spiritually ramming against a wall repeatedly? The first hindrance is pride. How does that hinder prayer? Well, prayer 
is by definition a posture of complete helplessness. Prayer is faith expressed verbally. Prayer involves seeing God as infinitely self-sufficient, as not lacking in anything, and it involves seeing ourselves as completely helpless and desperately needy. But you know what? None of us think that way, at least not consistently. We almost always believe the lie that we are in control. Think about just the things in our lives that we take for granted. Have you thought about recently air conditioning? You can at any moment adjust the temperature in a vehicle that you're driving 70 miles an hour down a highway or in any room in your house. There's so many small things in modern American life that lend credence to the illusion that we are in control. And we can so quickly be deluded into thinking that we have some sort of lordship over our own existences and over the existences of others. And the Bible says that that leads very quickly to pride. You see, pride is a hindrance because the posture of pride is the opposite of the posture of prayer. Striving in prayer is premised on the fact that we're not in control, that we need help. That's vividly apparent in our daily lives. Think of the times when you pray the most. I would be willing to bet a large sum of money that those are the times in which your lack of control is most apparent. Think of when you pray for others the most. I would imagine that those are the times when the needs of others are most glaring. If you have a spouse in Afghanistan, if you have a church when we started with no people, if you have a child sick in the hospital, those are the times when you're most cognizant of your own lack of control in the world. And therefore, those are also the times when you're most steadfastly approaching the God who can meet all of our needs according to his riches in glory. Yet in our world, we are regularly inoculated against those feelings, against our own helplessness, more than any other culture in history. So prayer is hindered by pride, isn't it? Secondly, prayer is hindered by distraction. By distraction. A huge hindrance are the external and internal distractions that we constantly deal with. That image that Paul uses there in verse 2 of keeping watch or being watchful refers to a guard keeping watch over uh, on the ramparts of the city walls. And that's what prayer is to be like, Paul's saying. A time where we're attentive, a time where we're watchful. But we know how hard that is because of distractions. For one, there's external distractions, right? There's phones always buzzing at us. There's screens always glaring at us. For you young parents, there's children always screaming and grabbing at you. And then there's internal distractions. Be honest with yourself. How many of you, when you begin to pray, within two minutes, find yourselves worrying about the things you are going to pray about? Or attempting to come up with a to-do list? Or rehashing a conversation in your mind that you wish had gone better? or fearing that intense meeting that you have later in the day. Our minds are constantly flittering about from fear to worry to doubt and then back to fear. 
And that makes prayer difficult, especially when we're not trained in the practice well. A third hindrance is what the ancient fathers called exedia. Probably never heard that word. I hadn't ever heard that word either before this week. Exedia literally means without care, without care. And it was used by the ancient church fathers, early Christians in the third, fourth, fifth, sixth centuries to describe what I believe is an extremely common spiritual condition. Listen, exedia is not quite sloth and it's not quite laziness. It's on the pathway to those things, but it's more a dullness of the soul. A dullness of the soul that stems from restlessness or despair. The fathers called this the noonday demon. The noonday demon. And they named it that because these ancient fathers would go out into the desert to meditate and pray and fast. And they'd have a great morning with the Lord, you know, out in the desert in the middle of nowhere. But when noon came around, they'd start thinking, I am hungry. What am I doing here? This is insanity. It makes no sense. It's probably much better for me to just go back to the house and go about my normal business. Is God even really up there at all? It doesn't really matter if I pursue him in this way. The noonday demons would begin to come after them when the sun was beating down at midday. And it would make them think that their devotion to the spiritual life is absurd and pointless. And I think that's something that we all wrestle with. It leaves the soul stagnant. It causes a waning of confidence in the importance and the efficacy of things like prayer. I think that's a huge hindrance for modern people. Why do you think you spend so much time on Facebook? Why do you think you spend so much time looking for the new show on Netflix? Why do you think you feel so restless all the time? It's because of this spiritual dullness bordering on apathy that people with a million things to do struggle with. Listen to Henri Nouwen. At age 68, he wrote this. After 40 years as a monk, he says, I feel like a piece of driftwood on still water. Nothing seems to move, and there seems to be no way to get things moving again. I am tired, but I do not sleep well. I'm talking to people, but I do not feel well connected. I do many things, but not much is happening. I do not feel depressed, just empty and somewhat indifferent. Jesus' call to live a spiritual life can only be heard when we are willing, honestly, to confess our own homeless and worrying existence and recognize its fragmenting effect on our daily life. Does that resonate with you this morning? I hope it does. When the combustion engine stimulates and motivates prayer, when the gospel is at work, and when prayer is happening and it's stimulating and motivating our faith in the gospel, these things have a mutually strengthening, strengthening effect. We grow in Christ. We experience change. We experience transformation. But there are many hindrances to us being watchful in prayer with thanksgiving. So given the hindrances, what are some of the helps? How practically can we grow in the grace of prayer? Let's talk about those and then we'll wrap up. First, discipline. The first help is discipline. And church, discipline is not contrary to grace. Discipline is not contrary to grace. Discipline does not inevitably mean legalism. 
Discipline, rather, is required for real growth. Paul, the great apostle and preacher of grace, is able to say to Timothy, train yourself. Discipline yourself for godliness. So Timothy was personally responsible for his progress in godliness. He wasn't to trust the Lord and then relax. Though, of course, the progress that he made is happening through the enablement of the Holy Spirit. I mean, think about this with me, friends. If the hindrances to seeking God in prayer are as strong as they seem, and if the rewards of prayer that Jesus talks about are as glorious as he promises then we should prioritize disciplining our lives for growth in prayer, for communion with God, for seeking him. You know, it's not at all unlike physical exercise. Exercise is hard work. Exercise always involves some level of toil and pain, often agony, right? Yet healthy people know that it's worth it for the results are going to come with time. And prayer is the same way. Prayer is always hard work. And it's very often agony. Sorry to say. (laughs) We sometimes have to wrestle to pray and even to concentrate enough to begin. But we should pray even if we aren't getting anything out of it and even when it feels hard. When you train for a marathon, you don't start by running 14 miles. You start by running like two minutes and then walking two minutes. And then the next day you might run five minutes and then walk five minutes and then more and then more. And prayer is the same. So practically and very basically, if you want to grow in your prayer life, you have to have a plan. You have to discipline yourself for godliness. Do you have a plan for prayer? And you might think, I'm not a planner. I don't even have a plan for what I'm going to eat for lunch. Fair but I want you to at least think about it in these terms. You must have a place and you must have a time. Those are bare minimum requirements. And without a place and without a time, disciplined prayer, growth and godliness is unlikely to happen. The gospel is not going to change you to the degree that it would if you disciplined yourself in prayer. Let me just give you a couple of practical examples, okay? There's a podcast that Marianne introduced me to called the Daily Liturgy Podcast. It's from another Acts 29 church, our friends at Coram Deo Church in Omaha, Nebraska. And it's a a six-day-a-week podcast. You can download it for free at the App Store. And uh, they have about a 12 to 15-minute scripture meditation and prayer time every day. So if you're driving to work or if you're dropping your kids off at school and then driving home or if you're 15 minutes having coffee, that's a great thing for you to listen to. And pray the Lord's Prayer together. Hear the scripture. Take some silence and contemplate and meditate on what you heard. And then join them in the prayers. That's a great tool that I would commend to you. Another very practical tool for disciplined prayer is to pray the Lord's Prayer. Remember when the disciples came to Jesus and said, Jesus, teach us how to pray. Jesus gives the Lord's Prayer as a template, as a guide for how we are to pray. So that's always been helpful to me because when I begin to pray, I very quickly get distracted and my mind wanders everywhere and I forgot where I was 15 seconds ago. Is that true for any of you or is it just me? Okay, good. I see people nodding. That's good. The Lord's Prayer is intended to sort of bring you back to center. Our Father who art in heaven. And then you can praise the Father for a while. Think about his character. And then you get distracted. Oh yeah, hallowed be thy name. Pray that for a little while. Oh yeah, your kingdom come. It's a template, a guideline, an outline for you to grow in prayer. 
But the point is, you need some sort of plan, friends. And you will not grow and change in the way that Jesus calls you to grow and change. And that God wants you to grow and change without one. Listen to Henry now and again. He says, the remarkable thing is that sitting in the presence of God for one hour, five minutes, okay, five minutes each morning, day after day, week after week, month after month, in total confusion and with myriad distractions, radically changes my life. God, who loves me so much that he sent his only son not to condemn me, but to save me, does not leave me waiting in the dark too long. I might think that each hour is useless, but after 30 or 60 or 90 such useless hours, I gradually realize that I was not as alone as I thought. A very small, gentle voice has been speaking to me far beyond my noisy place. Discipline is a necessary help. Second, answered prayers. Answered prayers are another help for steadfast prayer. One very helpful practice, maybe you could even do it on the drive home from church this morning, is think with your spouse or with your kids or with whoever you're with about ways that God has answered prayers you've made in the past. And rejoice in those. And you know what that does? That serves as a reminder to us that prayer doesn't just work, but it actually also changes us. I love the story in Luke 11, after Jesus has given the Lord's prayer, he tells a story. He says in Luke 11, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves of bread for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, don't bother me. The door is shut. My children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Yet because of his impudence, Jesus says, because of this man's impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. In other words, the guy kept on knocking. He kept on asking. And then Jesus says, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you for everyone who asks receives. You know what's amazing about that story is that Jesus is telling us that we should pray with shameless audacity. You should pray with shameless audacity. He's saying you should pester God with your prayer. Now, when your children pester you, when my children pester me, after about 12 seconds, just stop it, right? But God actually, he tells us in Isaiah 62, loves to be pestered. He loves to be pestered by his people in prayer. Why? Because God loves to answer prayers. If you actually believe that, it's going to serve as a help for your prayer life. So one of the great helps is to remember what God has already answered. Again, take 15 minutes, write down together with your family every prayer you can remember that God has answered. That spurs us towards more prayer. Last help, last thing. What's going to help you pray? The love of God. The love of God is the most valuable help for steadfast prayer, remembering and rejoicing in the abounding and matchless love of God for you, a sinner, in Jesus Christ. We simply don't understand the depth of God's affection for us. I don't think we, we quite understand what a delight we are to him. Zephaniah, the Old Testament prophet, says that God shouts over us. 
He sings over us. It doesn't say we sing to him. It says he sings over us. He shouts over us. He doesn't shout at us. That's very different. That's the way some of you think about God. God is not a God who shouts at you. God's a God who shouts over you in joy and in love. And that's unreal for us to believe because we know ourselves. And we know that there's very little deep within us in the dark crevices and corners of our hearts that are worth rejoicing over. But you know what the gospel says? God knows things, those things about you as well and infinitely more about you. And yet, in Christ, still rejoices over you. He knows full every crack and cranny of our being. And he still loves us. He still cares for us. He still delights in us because he has sent Jesus to make us whole again. When you understand that, you run to him and not from him. And you see that very early on in the New Testament. Remember when children run to Jesus? Children get this. Children don't run to grumpy, shriveled up people. They can smell that. It's like Elf when Elf saw the fake Santa Claus. He smelled him out right away. He said, that's not a real Santa. Children are the same way. They can smell out grumpy, harmful, angry people. They say, that guy's angry. I'm staying away. That guy's a little too, a little too tight for me. Who do they run to? Kids run to the unfettered, openly joyful people. When someone delights in your kids and when you delight in your kids, there's a marked difference in how they respond and how they react and how they're drawn up into or caught up into that person. And that's what God is like, you see. And it's understanding the delight of God for you in Christ that will lead you to pray more and more and more. You know, we've seen in Colossians for the last couple of months now that Jesus is enough. Jesus is sufficient and Jesus is supreme. The gospel, the gospel is beyond fathoming and God's faithfulness is beyond fathoming. And so the final call from the Spirit in this letter is let's pray. Let's be together with God. Let's spend time with him. Let's seek his face. It's the pathway to true change. It's the pathway to true life. It's the pathway to the own joy that Jesus himself wants for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace to us in Jesus. Thank you that you've sent him to become a human like us in every way except without sin, that you sent him to suffer the death and shame of the cross, that you sent him to be buried in death, and that he has been raised again from the dead into life. Thank you, Jesus, that through uniting with you in faith, we too have died to sin and are alive to righteousness. We too can expectantly hope and wait for your second coming when you will make all things new and to make us whole again. And yet, God, in the meantime, we struggle. We struggle with prayer. We struggle with distraction. We struggle with pride. So help us, God, to see you in your loving self truly. Help us, God, to discipline ourselves for godliness, that we might be a people that seek your face. And God, we pray that you would hear our prayers and answer us that when we knock, you will open the door, that when we seek you, we might find you. Thank you that you are gracious and that you make those extravagant promises to us about prayer. So drive us forward in faithful obedience based on your grace, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. The rest of our time together is designed to give you various opportunities to respond to the good news of the gospel of Jesus. One way we do that regularly is through confessing our sins and hearing God assure us of his pardon. 
The way we typically do that is by praying prayers out loud together as confessions of sin to remind ourselves that all of us are in the same boat. We're